Hello, and welcome to Science Like Soundwaves, UCSC's undergrad science podcast produced by Scientific Slug Magazine. I'm Olivia Irons, one of your hosts, and today we're talking about fungus. Perhaps one of the more overlooked organisms, fungus are a fascinating category of life. Today, I'm joined by three other Sly Sluggers for a fun little roundtable discussion. Hi, I'm Chelsea Kintz. I'm a fourth year ecology and evolutionary biology major, and this is my first quarter with Sly Slug. I'm Emma. I'm a first year marine biology major, and this is my first quarter with Sly Slug. I'm Chelsea Chan. I'm a second year chemistry major, and this is my first quarter with Sly Slug. Hi, I'm Olivia Irons, and I'm a fourth year environmental studies major. Um, and I am going on four years in SciSlug, so this is uh, very exciting. Uh, we haven't been podcasting that long, but we're excited to bring you some little science knowledge. So after all four of us have gone and given our little spiel, uh, we'll be joined by Zoe, who also has something interesting to teach us about honey fungus. Uh, and then Chelsea Kins and I did an interview with Christian Schwartz, who is a fungus expert. So stay tuned for that. Um, but today we're starting off our roundtable discussion with Chelsea Kintz. Awesome. Today I'm going to be talking about mycorrhizal networks. Myco means fungus and then rhizal means roots. Um, and these mycorrhizal fungi are fungus that have symbiotic relationships with other organisms. And this can range from plants to other animals but mainly uh, the research around this has focused on plants. There are two main groups of mycorrhizal fungi that exist. Um, there are, are buscular fungi and ectomycorrhizal fungi. And those are big, some big words, but they basically uh, describe the relationship between the plant and the fungus. Arbuscular fungi are more dominant in the tropic areas and they promote really fast carbon cycling, while ectomycorrhizal fungi are more common in temperate and boreal systems. For example, in Santa Cruz, all the mycorrhizal fungi we have are those ectomycorrhizal fungi. You're not going to find arbuscular fungi in this area. And they help up, they help lock up ca carbon from the atmosphere, which is really important when considering uh, climate change. And wait, so could you like reiterate what like the difference between the two types are? And I'm trying to like remember like how I can remember what the difference between those two are. Yeah, so they're kind of horrible sounding names, um, but our buscular fungi actually go in the host's roots, like within the cell of the root. And that's how they... Uh, donate resources between those but they're like um, not as good for carbon sequestration yeah they're more dominant in tropic areas mm -hmm. um and then ectomycorrhizal fungi actually surround the tree root without going into the cell and they're more common in uh ecosystems like ours in uh central california yeah and in temporal and uh other boreal systems. So they're way more common than arbuscular fungi because they can tolerate lower temperatures. As our climate is changing, the two types of mycorrhizal fungi are gonna have different reactions to how uh, warming temperatures will affect them. So around 60% of trees are connected through ectomycorrhizal fungi, 
but as temperatures rise, these fungi and their associated tree species are going to decline and most likely be replaced by our buscular mycorrhizal fungi, um, which isn't great news for carbon sequestration um, and reducing uh, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. So I think that's something really interesting to consider because when you think about climate change, most people don't think about fungi and the relationship to the surrounding trees. Um, however, most people know about mycorrhizal fungi through the concept of something called the wood wide web, which has been a pretty hot topic in science as of late. And basically, this is the idea that fungi can communicate through the roots of trees and then trees can communicate through these fungi as well. Um, so it's kind of like the language of trees and plants. Um, and this is found from tropical rainforests all the way up into the Arctic tundra. So it's important in all types of ecosystems. So these fungi will suck up isotopes and carbon and then also nutrients and water. And the, they can transport them from across the ecosystem from plant to plant or tree to tree. And they can these trees can use those to communicate about different uh, problems happening within their own ecosystem. For example, they did an experiment with broad bean plants and when they came under attacks of aphids, they released chemicals to not only repel their attacker, but also attract different wasp species to prey on the aphids. And so they were able to communicate this across the area of where these plants were uh, living and help uh, fight back against the aphids. And while the fungal communication is very slow, it's been very highly effective and something we've only found out in the past couple years of a different way that trees are communicating with, with each other. However, it's, it's not all a cooperation. There's also some competition within here. So plants will help similar species out more than they'll help out different species. And so they can divert resources away from neighboring plant species and give them to close related species to help build up their uh, take of the resources in that one specific area. So it's something very interesting of thinking about how trees can kind of speak to one another um, and something that should definitely be considered with it with future discussions of managing ecosystems and thinking about climate change. I'm just going to ask the other Chelsea, Chelsea Chin, um, are there any species of fungus that are categorized in these two groups um, that we know of, like colloquially? I don't have one off the top of my head, although I should. Um, that's a common fungus that we that has a mycorrhizal relationship. One of the ways you can get to better know where to find certain fungus is by learning the tree species in an area. So some fungi only grow uh, with connection to certain types of tree species. So there's definitely like close linked relationships between different species of fungi and different species of trees. I just cannot remember any off the top of my head, unfortunately. <laughs> All right, Emma, I believe you have something fun to share with us. Okay, I don't have much to say, but scientists in Pakistan and China figured out that there's a fungus that breaks down plastic, which 
was a known fact that some fungus can break down plastic, but this specific one, Aspergillus toughengenesis, I think that's what it's called. I couldn't find a common name, but it breaks down plastic in weeks opposed to years, which is obviously astonishing. It is known to break down polyester, polyethylene, which is used in refrigerator isolation, insulation, and synthetic leather. And there's not much on this specific fungus because this is a recent study, but I just thought it was interesting. How recent? Some fungus, 2017. But there's, there haven't been any follow-ups. Who did the study? The studies were done at the Kunming Institute of Botany in Yunnan, China, in the World Agroforestry Center of East and Central Asia. Oh. So the type of plastic... I, I know different types of plastic as, like, the numbers on the recycling chart, and I'm wondering if any of them correspond to the type of plastic you're talking about. What was, like, the chemical name of the plastic? Polyester polyurethane. So it seems like something that's not generally recycled, which means that, like, being able to compost that would be pretty great, because otherwise it would just only go to landfill, right? Yeah. I was wondering, like, when I was um, researching everything, I was wondering if that specific fungus could break down other plastics, but they haven't figured that out yet. Yeah, that's such a cool application of using fungus to, like, solve some of our man-made problems we have of trying to compost and break down plastics, which is a huge issue we're working through right now. I was actually talking to our advisor about this podcast. There's a project at UCSC through the Sustainability Lab and the Sustainability Minor that is trying to use fungus to compost pizza boxes or like, you know, contaminated cardboard. Um, Because as you might know, you can't recycle a pizza box because it is too greasy. So I guess there's a project called uh, Toadstool Composting and they're trying to use oyster mushrooms to assist the breaking down of the pizza boxes. It's an interesting thing that is involved uh, or or happening at UCSC. That's such a perfect uh, project for college students, too, because I feel like I eat so much food that comes in cardboard that you can't recycle it afterwards because it's contaminated with oil. Yeah, it's such a struggle recycling properly. (laughs) Definitely. Um, As a society and as an individual. I've sort of done some, like, projects from classes about waste and waste systems and how the problem goes beyond, like, insufficient waste systems. But obviously it boils down to the production, you know? We have a problem with how much things we produce that we don't have the infrastructure to recycle or to reuse. Definitely, we're going to have to redo the entire system. We can't just fix one part of it for it to work. But this is a super awesome uh, step forward in thinking about how we manage our waste and compost and get rid of it in a natural way. It's cool because, like, ref- in refrigerator insulation isn't something that you would, like, 
think about having plastic in it, or at least I wouldn't. I guess I would. Maybe. <laughs> well, obviously, if but someone was like, what's the inside of a refrigerator made of, you would probably know, but like... Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Emma. I really hope that um, more plastic can be broken down in, like, a sustainable way in the future. So, I hope so, too. It'd be pretty cool. Um, but... Um, Chelsea has a sort of similar topic, right? Yeah, it's also relating to the power of fungus. Who knew that it could be so powerful? <laughs> so my topic today that I'd like to discuss is mycelium-derived vegan leathers. Have any of you heard of that before? No. I'm seeing some no. shaking of the head. I have not. All right. Well, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to teach you guys a little lesson. Um, so mycelium is the network of a fungus. It's that red-like stringy stuff that you see at fungal roots. Um, and how mycelium leather is made, according to Bolt Threads, which is a manufacturer of mycelium leather, the process is that mycelium cells are grown on beds of renewable organic matter, like sawdust or agricultural waste. Um, and the cells grow and form a 3D network that's pretty interconnected, and then it's processed by tanning and dyeing it. And this process only takes a couple of weeks compared to how long it takes to raise a cow to maturity. And this is exciting because traditional leather has a pretty hefty environmental impact. Uh, according to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, the livestock industry is responsible for 14% of all human-generated greenhouse gas emissions, including that of nitrous oxide, carbon dioxide, and methane. And it also produces sludge, sludge waste, which is pretty toxic as a product. Um, and of course, there are also ethical issues that arise with the use of animal-derived leathers. So mycelium leather also answers that question of the ethics of using animal-derived leathers. Uh, as for accessibility of this leather, for now it's not very accessible to the public. Prototypes have been released of products like bags, shoes, and watches, but at the moment these products are really expensive, going for as much as $500, which is, I mean, personally out of my budget, I wouldn't <laughs> go out of my way to spend 500 bucks on a mushroom bag or anything. But yeah, this is really cool to hear about how fungus can be such a viable, sustainable solution to so many of our world's environmental problems. Yeah, that's all I wanted to share with you. That's interesting. Do you know, like, how it's different? Are there differences in, like, what it looks and feels like compared to regular leather? Yeah, that's what I was surprised about, too, because... I've seen products that are made from this mycelium leather, and it's virtually indistinguishable oh. from animal-based leathers. It's pretty comparable to what faux leather looks like, and it has the same durability, the same type of color and shape. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, if you just Google mycelium leather, you'll hmm. definitely see how it's pretty similar. I guess I don't think that much about how leather is produced um so it's like so the you grow the mycelium and it like becomes something that is you know 
I guess skin-like because it's mimicking leather, right? So it, it yeah. sort of like interweaves itself or, or grows into a tissue that is like of a single layer, much like a skin, right? Mm-hmm. And then I don't, do you know what the tanning process is? I don't know. So I haven't done as much research into the tanning process, but I do believe that uh, the tanning process for animal derived leathers um, include the use of chromium, which is a pretty toxic chemical, um, possibly ammonium. I'm not totally sure about that. Um, I'm not sure, so sure about the tanning process for mycelium leathers, though. Hmm. But I assume they would use some sort of natural dye. Although, back in the day, when they made leather, like, before the Industrial Revolution, I imagine the tanning process was different. I think those chemicals can expedite that tanning process, because I think the traditional way of tanning takes a very long time and involves a lot of effort, but there's chemicals that can do it much quicker and faster and a faster way I I've heard <laughs> yeah that's so interesting I've heard about mushrooms being used to dye fabrics but I've never heard it being used to like make the fabric itself so that's super interesting yeah I heard about this maybe about two years ago but I never really thought that much of it I just thought it was a cool fun fact but now that we're doing this podcast <laughs> it's going to be a good idea to bring back those fun facts and make it into a whole lesson that's awesome, yeah. I, um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it reminded me of plastic again. Because, like, plastic is used to make leather as well, right? So plastic can mimic leather. And fungus can also mimic leather. Maybe fungus can also produce products that can replace plastic. That is similarly possibly biodegradable so like i'm just thinking of like all the different other things other like substances that fungus can produce that can replace uses for plastic as well so it can break it down and it can create it fungus the creator and the destroyer we just need to make everything out of fungus well we can eat it some of it Mm. we can make things with it that's all we need Mm mm-hmm The future is fungus. But not only can mushrooms be creators and destroyers of life, they can also be destroyed by our digestive systems. So my segment is about eating mushrooms. As I'm sure you know, mushrooms are a part of cuisine all around the world. So, I don't know, what do people like about the taste of mushrooms? Dirt. Yeah, it's got that real meaty flavor. Meaty flavor, okay, okay. Yeah, I think they're really versatile as well, because, like, there's, there's, like, the traditional mushroom taste we all think of, but there's also so many different types of mushrooms have different flavoring. Mm, I don't know if you guys have had candy cap mushrooms Mm. before, but they're, like, sweet, and they taste like maple syrup, so. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I went to the the fungus festival Uh, in Santa Cruz last year. Me too. And there was a huge line it's true mushrooms can taste like a bunch of different things uh but typically we like get those like little bus- button mushrooms or shiitakes or portobellos or 
oysters, and those all have like slightly different flavors, but we generally as like associate them with like a savory flavor, maybe an earthy flavor, maybe like a meaty flavor, although maybe that's just like the texture, but it's, it's generally savory. Um, and um, if you just get like the standard like white or brown capped mushrooms uh, in like a carton, then they're good if you just like slice them up and you can saute them in butter and you can put saute them with butter and spinach. That's like a really simple, wonderful thing that you can make. You can make soup out of them. There's lots of things. But what I was going to talk about is the thing that Chelsea mentioned earlier is the flavor umami, which is a something that I remember learning in like elementary school for like someone's like science project or something. Um, and it's like this thing that isn't salty. It's not, um, it's not sweet. It's not sour. It's not bitter, but it's umami. So umami was discovered by this Japanese chemist named Kikune Ikeda in 1908. So over a hundred years ago now. Um, and he noticed the distinctive taste of this dry seaweed, uh, dried seaweed called konbu. And he had traveled in parts of Europe and experienced their cuisine, and he just thought this flavor was very different from the flavors that he had experienced in Germany. So he was very curious, and he was a chemist, and he like ran a bunch of tests, and he found that there was this chemical element called glutamate. Um, has anyone heard of glutamate? Or does that ring a bell for anyone? It sounds like gluten, but no, it doesn't ring a bell. Um, so it's an amino acid, actually. And in case anyone didn't know, amino acids are what proteins are made out of. So what he developed was this chemical called monosodium glutamate. Has anyone heard of monosodium glutamate? Yeah, I was like, isn't that MSG? <laughs> yeah, that's MSG. <laughs> um, yeah, so shortened, it's MSG. And uh, what do you know about MSG? There was a lot of news about it in past years about how it's really bad for you, but I think they've kind of, that came, came out of a kind of toxic diet culture almost, so... I'm not sure how true those claims are, but... <laughs> yeah, so MSG is commonly associated, actually, with, you know, Asian cooking. They use it to enhance the, like, meaty or savory umami flavor of their dishes, and they add it to different things. But uh, a lot of people claim that it was harmful. Um, it, some people claim to be allergic. Some people said it gave them headaches, and so a lot of people like wouldn't eat Chinese food for that reason. And I am not here to invalidate those people. Um, I think it's totally possible that any chemical can bother anyone's body system. Um, but based on like randomized control trials, um, there is no like definitive harms associated with consuming MSG. Uh, and generally, it's not um, it's not dangerous or harmful. My last thing, I guess, is this mushroom broth recipe because I mean, how else do you most 
effectively distill the taste of mushrooms than um, making a broth out of it. So I found this mushroom broth recipe on food and wine. So first of all, you're going to want some vegetable oil, a quarter cup of vegetable oil, one and a half pounds of finely chopped white mushrooms, some portobello mushroom stems, half a Spanish onion, two cups of dry white wine, half a cup of soy sauce, half a cup of dried mushrooms, such as porcini or shiitake, and then we've got a pinch of salt, and then half a teaspoon of herbs de Provence or thyme. So you use the vegetable oil and you saute the white mushrooms, the portobello stems, the onion, garlic, uh, until the mushrooms release their liquid. Then you add wine, soy sauce, dried mushrooms, salt, spices, and six cups of water, and you bring that to a boil, then you reduce it to simmer, reduce the heat to simmer, and then you reduce it from the six cups it was to four cups, which takes an hour, and then you strain it uh, a couple of times, and that's your broth. It can be refrigerated apparently for four days, which is short to me, but so I would recommend um, freezing that. So that's my recipe, but I would also recommend the other things that I mentioned before, which were just sauteing them with some vegetables. They're great. They go great with butter. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm gonna make some mushroom broth. Yeah. So, anyways, that's my culinary interlude for the episode. And uh, now we'll be joined by Zoe Petrov. So introduce yourself, Zoe. Hi, my name's Zoe Petrov. I am a biomolecular engineering major. I have been at UC Santa Cruz for this last quarter, so not even a full year yet. And uh, this is my first year in SciSlug. I'm here to talk about the honey fungus, which its scientific name, and pardon me if I get this pronunciation wrong, is Armillaria melia. So it's very interesting because it is speculated to be one of or the largest organism that exists today. The biggest one is located in the Blue Mountains of Oregon, and it is estimated to contain around either 7,500 to 35,000 tons of biomass in total. The reason it's speculated to be one of the biggest organisms is because another organism exists called uh, Pando, which is a massive forest made out of a type of tree called quaking aspen, which instead of being compromised of a bunch of different trees is actually just one major root system with a bunch of uh, above ground clones and um, that one is located in Fish Lake National Forest in Utah and the reason that uh, we can't really determine which of the two is the biggest organism in the world is because you know we can't just rip we, we're not going to be able to go and ripping out all the the uh organism out of the either of the forests and then putting it on a giant scale and saying this is definitively this many tons of biomass yeah i think it's interesting that the two candidates or 
the biggest organism, um, are both in the United States? Yeah, yeah, like they are. Wow. A lot of people, if you say, oh, the world's biggest organism, they'll think of it, something in the animal kingdom, like a whale, or even some people might think an elephant. But uh, it actually turns out to be either something in the plant kingdom or in uh, the fun- fungi kingdom, which is very interesting. And they're called superorganisms, is that correct? Yes, superorganisms. I'm so... wondering, it's because I think it's like a little bit too coincidental that like the two candidates are in the U.S. There may there might be like something bigger in some other continent yeah, a- that just another... hasn't been studied yet. Yeah, another um, potential reason why the two organisms can be, are, are found in the United States is because we do allocate, you know, a decent portion, depending on who you ask, <laughs> of our uh, governmental funds towards, you know, national parks and, like, uh, ecological research. But, you know, there's a lot of other countries that don't, necessarily allocate their resources towards that kind of scientific discovery so it might just be it might just be also a problem of like you know what what people are researching and where so uh the honey fungus is a part of the uh phyla basidiomycota and basidiomycota is basically categorized as what people would consider an archetypical mushroom. Uh, for example, um, the mushroom emoji is widely thought to represent a type of mushroom called the fly alaric mushroom, which is uh, endemic to uh, Norway. And then another uh, mushroom within the Basidiomycota phyla is a mushroom called puffball, which tend to be uh, located in the eastern United States. And those are like these completely spherical mushrooms that you can find in like the forest. And some people even eat them. And, you know, I, I have never personally seen one, but I, I, I know people who have had many, experience, many experiences with puffball mushrooms. Yeah, you can find both of them on campus, so definitely keep your eye out for some cool puffball, red and white spotted mushrooms. And um, some kind of similar to puffball mushrooms, while not necessarily thought of as like a an edible mushroom, they can, they are technically edible. Honey fungus. Honey fungus, yeah. Oh. Um, they, uh, you know. They haven't been said to have the greatest taste, and some people may experience gastric distress from (laughs) eating them. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, if you happen to stumble along, you know, some honey fungus, and you have someone that can confirm for you, like, hey, this is in fact honey fungus, uh, you can can attempt eating it and, you know, see how that goes. (laughs) But, um... Yeah, not not generally recommended, yeah, but definitely, risky. yeah, de- definitely theoretically possible. <laughs> so, any any listeners, if you have taken the chance and eaten honey fungus, please let us know. Want to hear all your story about your da- gastric distress? Also, uh, disclaimer: uh, don't necessarily go around um, 
just randomly picking up mushrooms and assuming that they are what you think they are because um, a lot of mushrooms, you know, can look exactly like each other. For example, one of them in Maine is a lobster mushroom. There are a bunch of mushrooms. So lobster mushrooms are amazing. They're delicious. Uh, lots of people like to use them in cooking, but there are also a, a bunch of other mushrooms that look exactly like lobster mushrooms, but if you eat them, they'll kill you. So <laughs> make sure that if you are going to go out in the forest scavenging for mushrooms, you have some sort of mycology expert that you can, um, you know, show your specimens that you've found to, and he can, he or she can confirm that that is in fact what you have. <laughs> My last main point about uh, honey fungus is that they are just, uh, ecologically, they are described as weakly pathogenic. Basically what they do is they um, colonize and kill woody roots. So they have more of a, more of an effect on like, let's say like trees as opposed to like uh, herbaceous type plants. Um, and what they do is they, the mycelium interacts with the roots of the plants in such a way that it disturbs the um, manner in which they can absorb nutrients from the soil. And I thought this was interesting because a lot of uh, fungi actually help, you know, trees and plants when they interact, when their mycelium interact with, uh, with the, um, you know, root system because right. they actually facilitate nutrient intake and sometimes even communication like i believe chelsea Kuntz said in the the woodwived web but you know honey fungus is that kind of outlier where when it when their mycelium interact with the roots of plants it actually disrupts as opposed to helps the plants you know uh, whole ecological system that has going on are they like so do they like consume the roots is that why they do it what i believe is they actually um mess with the cells like they they'll interact with the cells nuclei and actually end up messing around in there as opposed to like facilitating <laughs> cellular right. digestion so it's a path pathogen right do they is this help them in any way like um well i i i assume uh that they probably um because uh, mushrooms tend to be a they they don't have any they're not like plants they don't have any way to make their own nutrients so i assume that it's just a way for them to absorb nutrients from another organism as opposed to having to you know find a way to make it themselves because you know they they don't a plant has photosynthesis, or at least mm -hmm. a lot of them do, so that they can create their own uh, nutrients without having to rely on any other species. But mushrooms, that's just not the case. So they have to find something that they can take nutrients from. And I guess the uh, honey fungus likes to invade roots of plants and take nutrients that way. There's plenty of other mushrooms that do that. Like woodier mushrooms can do that without, uh, you know, relative, like without hurting the plant all that much but i think it's just because of the honey fungus's sheer mass they need to take a lot of nutrients and that's why it's so detrimental to like these plants when that happens well thanks zoe for that little lesson on honey fungus 
Next in this episode, we're featuring an interview with mycologist Christian Schwartz. Olivia and I interviewed Christian Schwartz, who is a, a naturalist and educator at UC Santa Cruz, who is a fungus enthusiast uh, about his work surrounding mycology and how to get into mycology yourself. Yeah, it was a wonderful conversation. Uh, he is very enthusiastic about fungus. It is infectious. So enjoy some excerpts from that interview. My name is Christian Schwarz. I'm a research associate at the Norris Center for Natural History at UC Santa Cruz. And I am co-author of Mushrooms of the Redwood Coast, which is a field guide to mushrooms in California. And I am a naturalist educator or natural history educator in a variety of different capacities, both on my own and associated with the university. Um, and I think that's probably the best, best like way I can summarize what I do. Awesome. We know you most as a person who studies fungus, uh, right, as a mycologist. So we're wondering how that interest in mycology uh, first developed before or during your time at uh, UC Santa Cruz? Um, I actually was interested in fungi before I ever arrived at UC Santa Cruz. Um, and it's part of the reason that I applied there. Um, I was interested in tide pool organisms. That was sort of like the first group of, of natural history or first group of organisms, first introduction to natural history that I'd had in San Diego. Um, but at some point, my brother decided he was interested in mushrooms and convinced me to go out looking with him. And it was a super rainy year in San Diego and there were mushrooms everywhere and I got really hooked. And after that, it was kind of just no going back. I couldn't stop looking at them. And I didn't really want to go to college anywhere where I couldn't look at mushrooms in between classes. And Santa Cruz was clearly the perfect place for that. And I think if I hadn't gotten in, I wouldn't have gone to college. So um, things worked out uh, and I ended up at UCSC and then I got connected with a bunch of other people who were interested in fungi and they really cultivated and facilitated my my trajectory, just getting more and more into mushrooms. And so what was your path after graduating from UC Santa Cruz, um, going into the world of mycology and studying fungus? Uh, I mean, I guess the first thing to say is that uh, I didn't graduate at first. I left the university. I dropped out to go pursue a life in mushrooms um, because I really wanted to get to know them sort of on their own terms, so to speak, not so much academically, not so much through books, uh, but by experiencing them in their habitats and finding them where they grew and sort of familiarizing myself with the cast of characters that was even out there which is sort of the basic work of natural history. It's uh, the organism is the, the ultimate authority. I think that's a Ken Norris quote on the wall of the Norris Center. Um, and that's what I did for, you know, between 2010 when I dropped out and 2016 when Mushrooms of the Redwood Coast was published, that's about all I did was look for mushrooms as much as I could. You know, obviously I had to work here and there, but I was mostly taking the winters uh, to drive up and down the California coast finding fungi, looking for fungi, taking notes, uh, just learning about them directly so that I could write this field guide with my co-author Noah Siegel. And that was my, during that time is when I started giving public lectures and starting my teaching career as well. And it didn't at first look like teaching students, it looked like giving talks um, for mushroom clubs, but it was extremely valuable public speaking skills and also learning how to make what you're doing, your research, uh, valuable to other people, how to make other people interested in what you're doing 
and sort of meet their own, like meet their desires for what they wanted to know more about the world and figure out how to give them um, insight into that sort of knowledge that you're gathering. So it was a way of calibrating my understanding of what people want to know more about, as well as um, just developing the very basic practical public speaking skills that I think pretty much everyone should learn if you're going to go into science communication or, or any researcher who's gonna publish needs to know how to communicate effectively and, and public speaking is one really good way to like start learning that skill. And then I looped back eventually and started teaching actual students, but that was a much longer, harder road to accomplish. I'm really interested in knowing like what is involved in studying uh, mushrooms. Like since you went off and sort of struck out and did it on your own, I'm wondering like what kinds of things you do to familiarize yourself with the organism. I mean, the first thing is sounds like almost uh, trivial or sort of silly or paradoxical, but you have to learn to find them. And that's not, uh, an, not a straightforward task in all cases, especially for species that have different ecologies or strange ecologies. Um, you might have to put in a significant amount of legwork and time just to see them. So learning to find them is a, a whole initial skill that you have to get good at. And then it's starting to learn more about what makes habitats suitable or different for, from one another that make them appropriate for a given species of mushroom. So you start to think about why a species of mushroom is in one place and not another, even though they look somewhat similar to your human senses. So it just is a, a lens for focusing your attunement to natural history and to ecology. But then there's the recognition aspect. Okay, now you found a mushroom, how do you recognize it? And that is an ongoing work. You'll, you'll never finish the work of learning how to recognize mushrooms. And every year you'll have to relearn parts of it. Um, because you get rusty in the off season during the summer and and then you know you'll see a mushroom looking a certain way it never really has presented itself to you before and you add a little data point every winter or 10 data points or 100 data points so that's sort of the constant work of learning how to recognize the organisms around you and then the better and better you get at that so now you've learned to find them you've learned what their ecologies are like what their habitats are like You've learned how to recognize them and hopefully name a few of them. Now you can start actually like reading the script of the play, so to speak. You've familiarized yourselves with the characters. What are they doing? How are they interacting with one another? How are they changing over time? Uh, what sort of structures and patterns can you find in their populations uh, and their geography and their evolution? And that's all just endless deep rabbit holes to go down that crisscross and you know meet each other in various ways. There's really never a stopping point or an end point. You've just, you're trying to familiarize yourself with these organisms enough that you can catch up to the story that they're playing out, and then you follow it through time and through space as well. So it seems like a lot of studying uh, mushrooms is sort of just like observation and thinking about sort of broad ecological phenomena that you're observing as well. But like, what other kind of tools are you using when you are studying fungus? So the nitty gritty of learning to recognize uh, fungi often involves microscopes. Um, so you can be looking at structures that are way too small for humans to see with the naked eye anyways. So you're looking at spores or you're looking at cell pigmentation or ornamentation or the shape of the spores. Um, and these are all things that are on the scale of microns. So one millionth of a meter, um, maybe times five or six or 10. So very, very small structures, but totally within reach, even for a cheap microscope. So if you buy a $100 microscope off eBay uh, or Amazon, it'll totally get you everything you need to see microscopically to study fungi. Um, but we also do more complicated things like uh, DNA sequencing. 
that will try and get regions of the, the genome analyzed for different species or different collections and compare them to one another and compare them to other people's collections from around the world and try and build evolutionary trees relating these species or these collections uh, in ways that we can draw conclusions from about trait evolution over time or biogeography or divergence. So when in history these lineages separated from one another. So DNA sequencing and microscopy are really big, important tools. But after that, it's a lot of just direct five senses, not so much sound, um, but smell and, and your sight, your vision. What does that mushroom look like? Using those senses over and over and getting better at naming smells, for example, that's a, a sense that we don't have a lot of practice with in our culture, but is actually quite, quite useful and, and really crucial for a lot of field, field mycology, learning to recognize mushrooms in the field. So that's one in particular that has fascinated me recently. But yeah, between your five senses and microscopy and DNA sequencing, that's sort of a lot of the main tools of learning to recognize fungi. But there's also all the, the corollary skills you learn, like photography, just learning to document what it is that you're seeing in a way that makes a record for other people to consult. Um, writing, so writing a clear description of a, a mushroom that you found is an art, and it's something that you have to practice and get good at and learn to write something that other people can interpret and find common shared ground in the descriptors you use for your sensory experience. Definitely. Yeah, that's super interesting hearing what tools do you use to do mycology. And we were also wondering, how would a student or someone, a novice to the world of fungus, get involved in mycology? Well, the good news is that like, we're living at the best time in history to teach yourself anything. There's more and more publicly available information or easily discoverable information than there ever has been in human history. Um, you can go on YouTube, you can go on Instagram, you can go on Facebook. There's almost no place that you could go that you couldn't find someone teaching other people about fungi. Um, the university really is the oldest model, perhaps, that we have of sort of institutionalized knowledge, but it is by far not, or it is, it is in no way the only way to learn about fungi. And in fact, I mean, I think as, as has been the experience of many UCSC students, it was not a place you could take a mushroom class. There wasn't any fungi-specific or mycology-specific programs, classes, other than plant disease ecology, which sort of peripherally touched on them. Um, it wasn't about fungi specifically. The university wasn't necessarily the best place to go looking for an introduction to the world of fungi. So I would say now, social media, because it's just what you're going to spend a lot of your time on, because we're millennials or younger. And these newer generations are very familiar with being able to get on social media and find content that addresses their sort of their desires for, for new knowledge. So people are doing amazing things on YouTube and Instagram, especially about just sort of small digestible packets of information that get you up to speed with the terminology, with the way people talk about this discipline. But I naturalist, I mean, if you know me, you know that I hardly ever stop talking about it. But it's a citizen science platform that um, is associated with an app that you have on your phone that allows you to share observations that you are making with a big community of people around the world. And I can't really overstate how useful the practice of using citizen science platforms is. So please do use iNaturalist, both in the website form, which allows you to explore data, as well as the app form, which allows you to easily submit data. And there's lots of YouTube tutorials on how to do this. So all of the sources of information also overlap with each other. YouTube leads you back to iNaturalist, leads you back to YouTube, and you'll just cross-reference these informational streams over and over. It's just a matter of, of immersing yourself in it and practicing 
not only getting the information, but also taking it out in the field. You can't stay in front of the screen and expect to learn what you're hearing. You need to go out and actually like be in the forest and implement some of the observational techniques that you're learning and try and challenge yourself to identify a mushroom from scratch over and over. That's the only way to get good at it. So taking all of those different disparate sources, you know, either whether it be, you know, a more academic approach, reading primary literature, which you can get in many cases for free online now using tools like Sci-Hub um, or Google Scholar. Um, there's lots of ways to get access to primary literature. Uh, and then integrating with the more fun, easy to digest sources of information like Instagram and Facebook. And then just finding a community, whether that's online or in person. I know right now in person is hard to get, but once things loosen up again, finding your local mycology society or, or mushroom club is probably the best fast way to get your skills up and running. So all of those things together, there's, there's really no wrong way to start, but just cross-reference all of them. So now we have some slightly more fun questions, I guess, but we're wondering what's the most valuable lesson you have learned from fungus? Oh God. Um, I feel like there's so many, but the single most valuable one, I don't know, I'll just name some valuable ones, maybe one or two. I think, okay, so here's one that I think about a lot is that so, so mushrooms are just the sexual reproductive structure of the organism. They're not the body of the organism itself that lasts from day to day or year to year or month to month. They are sort of a temporary structure like a flower or an apple of a plant or, or a, sorry, a flower or fruit of a plant. So they're, they're really not the permanent full body of the organism. And what that allows them to do is to sort of have less constraint on how they get their job done. And their job is really to allow two parents, two parent mushrooms to recombine their genetic material through sexual reproduction, and then to package up that genetic material into spores and get it out into the world. But the fact that they are sort of impermanent structures means that they can get messed up. They can get sort of distorted by too much rain or not enough rain or too much sun or dry conditions, and they get kind of deformed and distorted, but they still manage to sort of roll with the punches and get the job done. And they might end up looking really strange, which is sort of one of the challenges when learning mushroom identification is that they allow themselves to get so mutated looking or so different from how we expect, and yet they, they're functional. So it's sometimes been said that fungal development is just, it's highly plastic, it's really flexible, and it really is nimble and adapts to challenges in a way that even if I can't take a direct lesson from, I can use the metaphor to inspire me to sort of be that way myself. But not so much personally, where I find the metaphor most valuable is to maybe structure civilization level systems around like how how can we sort of encounter a challenge civilizationally and grow around it and maybe look a little funny look a little different than we expected and figure out how to make our systems more nimble more flexible more resilient robust uh, to the challenges that are clearly going to come our way in the, in the coming decades that's awesome such a great way to picture fungus in a broader context we are also wondering what is something you wish everybody knew about fungus Oh, there's lots of things I wish people knew about fungus, but one is just that they're a hyper-diverse kingdom of eukaryotes, which means they're at the same level of diversity as, say, plants or animals, and they are rarely studied at that same level of intensity at universities. So you can always go find a botany department and lots of botany classes, and you can always find multiple branches of zoology. You know, you find herpetology, ornithology, mammalogy. Uh, ichthyology, they're all offered at the university. So you can study mammals or birds or fish or plants any number of ways, but you 
oftentimes have difficulty finding a class that directly addresses this entire kingdom of life that is equally, if not more important. So I, I wish that people would just quit paying attention to birds for a decade. <laughs> Maybe that's a bit trident of an, uh, of an assertion. I have, I have some friends of mine who are, who are ornithologists, so I don't want them to take this personally. But if you, as a up-and-coming college student with lots of natural history talent and, and interest and energy to spare, decide to study, I don't know, birds, which we know so much about at the expense of this golden opportunity to like break new ground in the world of fungi, well, I can't help you, but I'm going to make a recommendation that, that you give fungi a try instead. There's just so much basic knowledge to be learned sort of right out the gate. If you know a little bit about fungi, you're suddenly an expert. So it's just a, a realm where there's so much more to be contributed so foundationally, so fundamentally, just learning about their basic natural history and life ecologies is something that I find super, super exciting. Obviously, they don't hold the same amount of charisma to the general public as birds yet, but I think that's changing. Um, and I think people are really turning on to fungi in the past decade. So I think they're, uh, it's sort of a growing wave of interest. And I think if, if students are willing to position themselves in that community, there's probably going to be a lot of cool opportunities in the coming years. Why do you think that fungus is so understudied in the world? I don't know. It's, it's like, I guess I have some canned answers to this that I give all the time, but I'm not sure I believe myself about any of them or that I have the like sufficient historical perspective or actual data to be making any statements. I guess partially it has to do with the fact that they're a little bit more difficult to study in some ways. But there's lots of animals that are difficult to study. Like we study hydrothermal vent organisms, which are super difficult to study. <laughs> um, so we figure out ways to study things we want to study. That clearly can't be the only explanation. Some people say it's because there's a cultural connotation of fungi, mushrooms with like death and decay. And perhaps there's some sort of like aesthetic prejudice against them because of that. And I think that's probably part of it as well. But I don't know. I mean, they are a little bit foreign to us. Um, they do seem somewhat unnatural or supernatural or sort of spooky in that they sometimes appear not to be there and then suddenly they're there. So mushrooms specifically is what I'm talking about here. They can sort of jump up after a rain and surprise us. Uh, so they have these these weird ways of being that I think make them odd and perhaps were less attractive as a topic of study in earlier eras. But I think in some ways those things that may have made them unattractive in years past are now exactly the same things that make them really interesting to people. And like, we're, we're just sort of ready for it now. So I don't want to dwell too much on, on like having a chip on my shoulder about them being understudied. I'd rather just take it as a really exciting time to pay attention to them. Awesome. And so I think we have one final kind of fun question. What is your favorite fungus? If you could pick a favorite. I can't, I simply can't. Um, <laughs> But there are so many that do such cool things that any of them will do. I know this is also a, a trite or cliche answer at this point, but it's like whatever fungus is in front of me at the moment. Because when you're sort of standing there or sitting there right next to a mushroom that you know about and you know a few things about, uh, it's just, it's all that you need to occupy your interest and your curiosity and your sort of aesthetic wonder at the moment. But let's just say one that I recently encountered was uh, the jack-o'-lantern, Omphalotus olivacens. It's this mushroom that primarily lives in California. It barely extends outside the borders of California, but curiously, it does grow throughout almost all of California. So it like fills out 
the entire state without crossing the state boundaries almost at all. So it's a very Californian mushroom. It's this sort of large, dingy to bright orange guild mushroom that grows on dead wood, like oaks um, are its favorite, favorite tree. And it is poisonous to people, so there's that. That's a little bit interesting. You can dye wool purple with the pigments that you extract from the mushroom itself, which is pretty cool. But the coolest thing, I think, by far is that it glows in the dark. So you get this bright green, or in some cases, somewhat um, dim green glow. But occasionally, you'll get a fruit body that glows really brightly when you take it into sort of a dark room. And I think that's just so unlikely. It just feels so weird to find a mushroom that's just sort of all over California that glows in the dark. Um, that's just sort of the fact or the kind of fact that is representative of the bizarreness and the beauty and sort of intrigue of mushrooms that keeps me stuck on them. There's just endless examples of mushrooms that do weird stuff or look weird ways or have strange ecological interactions. And I just, I love it. I can't get enough and I, I keep getting more. <laughs> that's beautiful. I just Googled it and they're truly um, very interesting looking. You can find them on campus too. So it's definitely something you could go see. All right. Awesome. Noted. Um, well, thank you so much for your time, Chris. This was like a very interesting um, deep dive into psychology. Oh, it's just the start. Yeah, you can <laughs> yeah. dive deeper and deeper. Yeah. <laughs> sure. But cool. Yeah. Thanks for having me and, and good luck to the Sci Slugs of this year. It's going to be a historical year, I'm sure, for Sci Slug publications. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this fungus-tastic episode of SciSlug Soundwaves. You can find us at scientificslug.com, at SciSlug on Instagram, or you can email us at SciSlug at gmail.com. We hope you enjoyed our company. This has been Olivia, Chelsea Kintz, Chelsea Chan, and Emma Hool. With Scientific Slug Magazine at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. <laughs>